folks. Welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream. Winter is leaving. We are at number 119. Am I correct about that? We're at live stream 119. And as we stream to you today on March 19th, it is the final day of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. The final day of winter, making tomorrow the solstice. No, the equinox. Yes. Yes. In which uh, day and night are equal um, in length, although, of course, because uh, in, in physics anyway, light spreads and darkness does not in a planet, on a planet with an atmosphere. Of course, there is actually more light, more time with light than with darkness on the equinox. Uh, in the rest of the world, in the social world, darkness seems to do a very good job of spreading. Uh, there is there is a lot of darkness, and it does seem to be it, it, uh, spreading, kind of almost like it's oozing. Yeah. Now, the, the shadows, they expand their reach in a way that, um, you know, sunlight being the best disinfectant would that there were a metaphorical truth there as well. It's not always the case, it seems. Right. Well, um, I mean, there are other aphorisms we could go to. Uh, it's always darkest before it goes pitch black. Um, <laughs> that's that's one. I don't know if that's helpful, but... Uh, or true. No, it, I think it actually... Um, yes, I think it is, because it, inherently it's like the ball has to go to uh, a speed of zero before it reverses direction and falls back down. Yeah, but if pitch black is actually darker than what it was before, then it wasn't darkest right before then. Short of pitch black, it is it is as dark as it gets. All right, See, aphorisms don't you, you don't get caveats with aphorisms. Um, you, you don't get caveats with aphorisms. Is that a rule? So. I think so. Okay, that should be an aphorism. <laughs> that should be an aphorism. Wow. Okay, we are we are early today. Uh, some of us, at least one of us, has not had any coffee or anything. So here we go. Well, I, I had I had coffee. It, it did not help. You had coffee for both of us, perhaps. Yes. Um. Yeah, it's spring. It's spring, and that uh, that that does help um, with the rest of the world would follow along. Uh, we've got some announcements. We have, uh, as is usual, we'll have three sponsors at the top of the show, and then the rest of the show is ad free. And uh, then we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about lab league. We're going to talk about uh, trans athletes. We might talk a little bit about a Nobel laureate. Uh, we're going to bring these things together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I feel a theme emerging. It's like one of those situations awesome. where, uh, you know, back when we were teaching at Evergreen, there was this that. phenomenon where you had a sort of plan about what you were going to teach, but actually things tended to gel uh, after you got it all on the table in a way you didn't expect. So I'm hoping for that. I see. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that was exactly my experience, but uh, we had very different approaches. Uh, didn't we? So, but today I am uh, I am I am pleased to go with uh, with your plan. Excellent. Um, okay, a couple couple of announcements before our ads before we dive right in, and then you know once once we're into the mini part of the show, we're going to try to keep it relatively uh, relatively quick today because we are coming to you early because uh, we have we have some place to be. That's that's all I'll say for right now. So um, there's a podcast out this week that we did last week uh, called "The Evolution of Medicine" with host James Maskell. This was we have not listened to it, but we participated in it, and it was a it was really a terrific conversation. And uh, and we got his book. This is the Community Cure. He's actually written two, but this is the Community Cure by James Maskell. Um, Transforming Health Outcomes Together is the is the subtitle, and he and uh, the, the people around him, the the people uh, with whom he works, are 
have been working hard for many years to transform uh, how medicine is practiced and how people experience medicine and therefore their own health. Uh, and uh, I am, I've just begun to dip into this book. It seems great. Certainly the conversation with him was terrific. And um, it left, I, I think I speak for both of us, with uh, a lot more hope about the future of healthcare and medicine, um, potentially globally, but uh, we know the most about uh, the U.S. situation uh, than I've had in a very long time. Well, I, I would put it a little a little differently. I okay. would say um, there's tremendous reason for hope in our discussion, but as always, the question is what school of thought is going to win out? And in so many places, you know, we have the materials to do much better than we are doing. But we are in some sort of a battle with um, forces that are capable of derailing superior ideas in favor of, I don't know, what I presume are lucrative ideas. So anyway, I guess the point is, listen to the podcast and see if you don't hear a more reasonable, rational approach to medicine than you typically get from mainstream sources. And then ask yourself this question, if that's true, why aren't you hearing more of this? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, and so we'll put the link to that uh, to the podcast in the show notes. Um, speaking of books, our book is still out there, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. We heard, actually, I don't remember if it was this week or last week, that it's been adopted um, as again um, as a text in a college class, this time a sociology class. And this just this this thrills me as a as a way to introduce evolutionary thinking um, to people. I think that's that's wonderful. So um, consider picking it up. Um, at a bookstore, at a library, wherever, um, and and taking a look if you haven't. Uh, the live, the chat, if you're with us live, is live on Odyssey. We're also on, of course, YouTube for for the time being, and uh, and some other places. You can ask your questions for the second hour at uh, www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. What? Oh, uh, right now on my Patreon for uh, members at patrons at the $11 and up level, you can ask questions for a monthly Q&A, which are private Q&A, which happens next Sunday. Um, that's always a lot of fun. And uh, we, we, have, we have fun with that and you do with your conversations at your, at your Patreons You as can well. think of that private Q&A as Dark Horse Dominance as opposed to Dark Horse Submissions. It's, you know, two different ways to approach the Dark Horse podcast. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Left you speechless, didn't I? You, you, you did. You did. Uh, we've got we've got stuff. We got merchandise at darkhorsepodcast.store.darkhorsepodcast.org. darkhorsepodcast.org, and um, as always, weekly weekly posts um, from me at naturalselections.substack.com. But I'm not I'm not sort of feeling like pitching all these things right now. So let us go into. Uh, the three ads for the week. We actually have two two brand new sponsors to us this week, and one one that is tried and true. So I will start with the first brand new sponsor. Brett will go to the next one, and then I will wrap it up with our with our tried and true sponsor. They are uh, Blinkist, Bright Move, and Soul. So our first sponsor this week is Blinkist, a company founded on the idea that almost none of us have the time to read everything we'd like to read. Yet we lose countless hours to activities that bring us little joy, such as commuting or chores or staring at our phones. Blinkist encapsulates books into their most concentrated forms and allows users to take away valuable ideas by investing time that they might otherwise have lost. Blinkist is 10 years old this year, and their theme is 22 Ideas for 2022. 
There are so many books that I want to read as, as regular listeners and viewers of the podcast will recognize I'm, I'm reading many books at all times, but uh, I'm, I'm fairly uh, discerning and I'm also not a particularly fast reader. And so, uh, you know, the pile, the teetering piles near and on my nightstand uh, don't seem to shrink. They instead seem to grow even as I read them. Blinkist provides a way to learn and clear the list to some degree. What books is Blinkist perfect for? Which ones don't I need uh, to or want to know any more about and which warrant an actual read? I use Blinkist for books I'm interested in because I know the authors and respect them and I'm curious to see what else they've done. Daniel Pink's Drive, for instance, which is about motivation, specifically what he calls Motivation 3.0. And he talks about relying on intrinsic rather than extrinsic motivation. In, in the Blinkist version of Pink's Drive, I found reinforcement of conclusions that we had come to teaching college for so many years. I also use Blinkist for books I've heard about and want to know more, but I'm unlikely to read in full, such as um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. The Blinkist on, on that is um, is clear indeed and, and fabulous. And I also use Blinkist as a kind of library. I have on my nightstand, for instance, Debt by David Graeber, um, and we've talked about Graeber um, on the show before, uh, but it's very long, and I haven't gotten far into it, um, and it's, you know, it's been there a long time. Uh, when I look up Debt on Blinkist, I find other books on similar topics that are intriguing, much like browsing the stacks of a library. This process of discovery can be some of the most wonderful aspects of looking through Blinkist, finding things you didn't know you were looking for, didn't know existed, and quickly learning something new. Blinkist has abundant and excellent content to help you become more empowered, inspired, and motivated in 2022, and presumably beyond. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash darkhorse to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash darkhorse for 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Once again, that's Blinkist.com slash darkhorse. All right. Now, our second uh, sponsor is also new, and it requires a little bit of explanation. Uh, our second sponsor is Brightmove. And as you all know, we have taken a pledge not to recommend things that we are not in a position to recommend based on uh, what we know. Now, in this case, this is not a service that we have used, so I have to explain to you how it is that we are confident in recommending it. We're confident in recommending it because the company... What is the service? The service uh, is a recruiting tool. I'll get to the details of that shortly. Applicant tracking system, right? An applicant tracking mm -hmm. system. And it was... Uh, it, the company was co-founded by David Webb, who is the current CEO. Now, uh, David became known to me as he joined forces for Unity 2020, where he did uh, a lot of excellent work. So not only is David mission aligned with us here at Dark Horse, but he uh, was a prime mover on the rank choice voting system that we use to select the Unity candidates. So we know he's highly technically competent, and we know he's an excellent guy uh, who gets stuff done uh, beautifully. So that is the basis on which we are recommending this service. So, Rightmove is a modern recruiting software, other, otherwise known as Applicant Tracking System, or ATS. Listeners who work in staffing companies, RPO companies, and HR departments know exactly what an ATOS, an ATS is, and if you are not already using Brightmove, you are missing out on the opportunity to make more placements and hires. Uh, there uh, are a lot of ATS vendors to choose from, but here are just a few differentiators that make it worth your time uh, uh, to go to Brightmove uh, and get a personalized demo. 
there are new software features released every three weeks. All new features are requested by Brightmove users um, who are all boots on the ground recruiters and hiring executives. It is 100% US-based technical support. That's unusual. Uh, winner of multiple customer service awards every year. Recruiting analytics show you uh, exactly where your top candidates are coming from. Uh, drag, and, drag and drop candidate uh, cards through your hiring workflow uh, or Kanban style dashboard. All right. I assume that those of you who do this for a living know what those things mean better than I do. But nonetheless, I highly recommend that you check out David Webb's company, Brightmove. Um, and you can visit them at brightmove.com slash dark horse. If you do, you will become a customer. You will receive nope. one month of free service, depending on your company's size and software package, that is a savings of between $1,000 and $3,000. Visit brightmove.com slash darkhorse. That's B-R-I-G-H-T-M-O-V-E dot com slash darkhorse. Let me just say that you, you you visit that and you schedule a demonstration. That doesn't guarantee that you become a customer. Right. Sorry. I flubbed that. Nope. We're good. We are good. Um, our final sponsor today will be familiar to those of you who've been following along. Um, it's Soul. Soul is a sustainable orthopedic footwear company. It's one of two footwear sponsors that we have, and we love them both. They're quite different from one another. Both have an evolutionary approach to creating shoes that help feet get and stay healthy and people become more mobile. If you will barefoot our other specifically aims to give you the sense of being barefoot in your shoes, Soul, with both their shoes and their footbeds, brings structure back with intention. Soul aims with its footwear to return our feet to health, and they do so. And, their and the shoes that they make are beautiful. Soul has created a footbed that is affordable, customizable, and improves people's everyday foot comfort. Furthermore, they've created their own recycling program, Recork, to collect and upcycle wine corks to make its products. Millions of customers rave about this product, and two-thirds of Soul customers have two or more pairs of footbeds. So uh, just to be clear, a lot of people have orthotics, uh, for instance, that they spend a lot of money on and they put into shoes in order to make shoes uh, that may not be perfectly designed for their feet, uh, perfectly designed. Sole footbeds um, are far less expensive and far better for you, uh, as I understand it and has been my experience, and you can put them in almost any pair of shoes. Our two boys are wearing the shoes much of the time now. They take some getting used to. The structure under the arch is unusual, but once you get used to them, they provide great support for feet, and again, they look great. So shoes look terrific, but you just if you're just looking for the footbeds, as I've said, um, try them. Seriously, try them. They make a flip-flop also that isn't a flip-flop. If you're a fan of a shoe, you can quickly slip on to step outside or if it's wet or dirty, but don't want the downsides of a flip-flop slippery, having to grip your toes to stay in it, which isn't good for your feet, then this is the shoe for you. Soul brings an amazing offer for first-time customers of 50% off through yoursoul.com slash darkhorse. You can try Soul, that's S-O-L-E, for yourself. They are so confident that you will love them that they also offer 90-day money-back guarantee. It's very hard to go wrong. This offer is applicable to all items on the Soul Soul store. Again, that's S-O-L-E, be it footbeds or footwear. That is our ads for the day. And we, thank, right. we thank our sponsors very much. Yes, we do. Okay. You want to lead us off? Uh, we talked about various topics. Which topic are we leading off with? You said you were going to bring it all together. No, that's at the end. That comes at the end, the bringing it all together. All right. Would you like me to start off? Yes. All right. Um, I wanted to start then with a an exploration of a 
uh, a hidden principle. Maybe it's two hidden principles in the universe. The first one I was prone uh, to revisit by a tweet from uh, our friend Mark Andreessen. Zach, could you put up Mark Andreessen's tweet? So, since Zach is fiddling around here, um, Mark, uh, who of course was a, we cannot read that from here, Zach. Um, all right, so Mark, uh, who was prime mover behind uh, Netscape Mozilla, tweets, overheard in Silicon Valley, new rule, it's okay to think critically about the previous thing, right? Now, this is a phenomenon that I think we have all begun to recognize, especially those of us who have been uh, out at the fringes of heterodoxy uh, in recent times, which is that there is some sort of a process by which um, we are... Um, penalized for discussing certain things and then certain changes are made and we are suddenly allowed to talk about certain things. So people will remember, for example, the moment at which Jon Stewart went on Stephen Colbert's program and famously said something hilarious about the fact that uh, science has been uh, wonderful in helping us address the pandemic which was caused by science. Um, suddenly it was possible to talk about the lab leak theory in the aftermath of that, whereas before it had been nearly impossible to do so. Hypothesis. Well, okay. that's a question. No, you're, you're right. You mm -hmm. ha Heather has corrected me here. She has whispered uh, <laughs> hypothesis. And of course, this has been something I've been very careful about. Now, the question is, is it still a hypothesis right. or has it become a theory? Now, I do think I made the error you suggested because... No, but this I'm, is someplace you're going. I I'm know. I'm talking about yeah. a period uh, in which it was um, still contentious. And so, therefore, possibly, um, uh, I should have said a hypothesis here. But nonetheless... And there's many people who would argue it's uh, not only still contentious, but actually um, almost certainly false. Today. Um, right. Now. And in mm -hmm. fact, this has, this has had a very interesting trajectory. So I first I want to introduce what I think the principle, the, the extension of Mark Andreessen's point. So Mark is saying that he overheard in Silicon Valley that it is permissible to think critically about the previous thing. Presumably his point is something like you're not allowed to think critically about Ukraine at the moment, but you can now go about thinking critically on COVID now that people have moved on to Ukraine. Um, my point would be, yes, this is true to an extent. However, there is a subsidiary principle that people should be uh, watching out for. And the subsidiary principle is that you can think critically about the previous thing, but the vindication of those who thought critically about it in real time is not permitted, right? And mm. so we will not see the resurrection of the reputations of people who were stigmatized during um, the initial phase uh, because, and there's a very good reason for this, and I'm not saying it's a valid reason, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that there's an, uh, an easily understood reason, and the reason is something like... Just be, this, this is a point about which uh, we are often... People are often confused when you say... When you say in this case there's a good reason, 
people assume what you mean is there's a reason I like. Yeah. Or when you say there's a good hypothesis, people assume you mean that's a hypothesis I hope is true. And you know, part of part of the problem is language, and that the the language is a little unclear. But um, you know, what you mean, and you were very clear here, but it's a more general principle is. Um, there is a reason that is understandable, that we can track back and see why it might be true. There is a hypothesis that is plausible for these reasons, and that is quite separate from whether I think it to be true, but even more so quite separate from whether I would like it or not like it to be true. And so in this case, you're about to um, discuss an idea that you know, we wish were not true, but appears to be, and here's why. Right. So, you know, if you were to describe this principle, if you were to sit down on a park bench and try to describe this, you would want to be careful to say, uh, I hope this will be taken in a non-normative context. That way it would clarify this to you. It your, does sound like park bench conversations. Park bench conversation. Well, depending upon... If you're talking to the pigeons. I was very good. I was just headed to the pigeons. Sure. All right. So here, here's the, uh, the point. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk for a moment about meritocracy. And again, this needs a little bit of a caveat, too. Um, meritocracy is a marvelous thing. And to the extent that it functions, it is a tremendous uh, engine of insight and innovation. We do not have a perfect meritocracy anywhere, so far as I'm aware. So when one invokes meritocracy, it is certainly impossible. You might be able to rig, you know, it might be that... Uh, an infinitely iterated series of chess games is a perfect meritocracy for success in chess. But other than a trivial example uh, mm-hmm. like that, uh, it's very difficult to have a perfect anything. And meritocracy every is variable place. has to be well bounded. Right. And so mm-hmm. the thing is, the more interesting the thing you're trying to do is, you're trying to accomplish. The more novel it is, the mm-hmm. noisier your meritocracy will be. Even when your meritocracy is well structured, right? There will be lots of luck and things that uh, impinge. Um, But here's the point. Corruption of all kinds disrupts the search for merit, right? That is what corruption effectively is, is the breaking of a system that claims to be the pursuit of merit uh, in favor of other objectives like enriching some particular uh, constituency or something like that. When something becomes corrupt, the thing people do not necessarily intuit is that it becomes often very powerful in protecting itself, but also very easy to beat, right? If you have a corrupt department that is supposed to be innovating things, then it will do a poor job because it's really, you know, feathering somebody's nest or advancing somebody's political interests. And those things come at a cost to doing what it is supposed to be doing. This is true for fields as well. Academic fields, as they become corrupt, become surprisingly easy to beat. Right now, it it is not surprisingly easy to beat them and get credit for it. Right, but if the point is you want to, you know, if predictive power is the purpose of uh, the advancement of science, it is possible to generate more predictive power than a corrupt field. The more corrupt the field it is, the easier it is to beat it in this regard. Um, you can outthink it. Yep. And so what you get is a dynamic as corruption takes over something. You have to find a reason to dismiss people who are finding the thing that is corrupt easy to beat, right? So you dismiss them on the basis that they are uh, kooks and only a fool cannot see through them. That's a typical one, uh, you know, um, or that they are uh, 
corrupt in their own right, that the, the corruption is really on the part of the people. On, basically, the point is you've demonized the fringe, right? Now, the problem is, for anybody who's tracking actual predictive power, the fringe will surprisingly keep being the place where the reality is spotted first and uh, carefully argued, and the mainstream, the corrupt thing, will keep being embarrassed by those on the fringe, right? So you, But the fringe will also be the home of spectacularly wrong takes, right. Most which, of the which are easily pointed to as evidence that therefore so must be all of what is not mainstream. Right. And so you will get all kinds of shell games like, um, okay, so-and-so on the fringe was right about X, but for the wrong reasons, right? You'll get little excuses like this. And the point is, okay, that can be true on any one thing, but it doesn't generate a track record. If right. you are repeatedly right and you're not repeatedly right by virtue of predicting everything and then claiming those places where you were right, which is one trivial way you could technically uh, accomplish something. But if you are, in general, more right than wrong, and significantly more right than a field that has become corrupt and therefore isn't all that interested in being right or all that capable of getting there, then you are a threat. Because over time, the question will be, well, okay, if the fringe is inherently uh, uh, kooks, then why is it telling me things that turn out to be true again and again and again? Mm -hmm. So the fringe must never be vindicated, even if the mainstream is forced to accept uh, some new principle. Now, I would argue that this is happening in multiple different domains. There were three major COVID domains as we encountered them. One COVID domain had to do with the origin of COVID itself. Yep. The other two had to do with the utility of early treatment drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, um, and the third had to do with the safety and effectiveness of vaccines, right? Now, in all three of these, we could talk about what it is that the fringe spotted, that, you know, the fringe had been actively driven to the fringe, that actually there were things that the mainstream should have been talking about that it wasn't interested in talking about. Well, one thing that is true is that the fringe gets defined by taking a position that runs counter to whatever prevailing forces are running the establishment. So there are a lot of scientists, researchers, health professionals, who two years ago, two and a half years ago, five years ago, uh, thought that and appeared to be completely within the mainstream in terms of you know doing good work, doing honest work, having integrity, uh, pursuing evidence as it you know pursuing evidence as it showed up and figuring out what it meant and if a what then you know what b if given a and um, were pushed into were vilified were named as people on the outside because they arrived at conclusions that didn't fit it's not that they were they were or many people were not already on the outside nor were these people who were looking to be fringe to be contrarian to be outside of you know the 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 civilized discourse of cocktail parties there are certainly people like that um, but this is not the driving thing the driving the driving thing is what's true what are we doing oh my god there's this there's this evolving situation quite literally on many levels what is true of it and therefore what can we do to better ourselves 
um, in the face of, you know, COVID two years ago and to prepare for such a thing in the future? What is the likelihood of such a thing? And what is this thing? What is the nature of the thing? Right. And in fact, um, one of the things that tells you that COVID is an incredibly screwed up, I would argue, upside down landscape is the high quality of the people who are supposedly French, uh-huh. right? So you've got, you know, Tess Laurie, uh, uh, Tess Laurie and John Campbell on Ivermectin, Tess Laurie literally being a, a, a highly decorated WHO scientist. You've got um, Pierre Corey, you know, who has, you know, literally written a textbook on pulmonology and is a highly decorated ICU doc. Right, you've got um, one of the world's most published cardiologists, uh, Peter McCullough. McCullough. Mm-hmm. You have, um, you know, literally one of the, uh, arguably the primary architect of the uh, mRNA technology that went into vaccines, raising alarm about these mRNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. You really couldn't ask for more highly qualified people. Right. But nonetheless, they are portrayed as if they are fringe. Um, In fact, we will get we will get back to Sam here a little bit later. But Sam actually wondered aloud. Sam Harris Mm -hmm. uh, wondered aloud in in, uh, one of his podcasts on the subject, whether the explanation for these people was that they were simply part of the small percentage of the society that's schizophrenic. Well, and this actually... um because because we have so much to talk about, let me just slip in here something that I thought we might spend more time on. But um, uh, Luc Montagnier died in February. Uh, he was a Nobel laureate. He received the Nobel in 2008, I want to say. Um, uh, it, it was a co-recipient, uh, and he and she shared it with someone else. And I'm not, I'm not just not remaining the specifics, um, but... He shared it uh, with, gosh, I've forgotten her name, uh, for the discovery of of HIV. Uh, And uh, there have certainly been people who received the Nobel who later on people came to think, oh, I'm not not so sure about that. The fact that Luc Montagnier came to question some of what he had understood to be true later on and what indeed whether or not HIV was uh, the sole cause of AIDS, which is certainly not a mainstream position and it's not accepted within the establishment, but he was pursuing evidence. He didn't say, you have to listen to me. This is the only way to proceed. He said, I'm, I am wondering about this. And in COVID, uh, he, he came out early by in actually talking about lab leak. He said, I, I, I cannot I cannot comprehend, given what I've seen of this virus and a lifetime of research on viruses, and indeed as a Nobel laureate, that this particular virus could have a zoonotic origin. I, uh, and so he uh, he certainly was well outside the mainstream, and he has other, other positions that are well outside the mainstream um, on COVID. But at the point that he died, the obituaries were a slow in coming, and uh, either so banal as to be clearly disrespectful in that regard, or um, or actually disrespectful. So let me let me just say this. I'm going to point to this. I chose 
I said to you, to you earlier, I chose the wrong week to switch to Brave because nothing is quite simple anymore. Um, let me see if I can find it. Here we go. Okay. Um, here's a an obit in science on one of the two premier science journals in the world published just two days ago, even though he died in early February. So that, that in itself is quite something. It's quite a short obituary. It has um, really nothing about his controversial positions. And it ends with this line. As Bjorn Venström, I don't know, I don't remember who that is, remarked at the 2008 Nobel ceremony, Montagnier was in the right place at the right time. That is so nasty. It's so nasty. And this is how, when someone has gotten so many accolades that it's really hard to make them into the fringe, this this is fringe making. Yeah. That's that's what that is. So that's... It's, that- it's hard coding the analysis that Luc Montagnier is fringe, that his success, which nobody disputes, is the result of luck. Right. Right. And he was it, surrounded by good people right. and he got lucky. And yeah. l- let me tell you something scientifically speaking, right? We, all of us who actually get how science works understands that it's a self-correcting process. And so this idea that science has arrived somewhere and we are all to follow it is bullshit from the get-go. Right. Um, but the basic point is, look, when somebody with a Nobel Prize, a relevant Nobel Prize, takes up a heterodox position, especially one with a high social cost, right? You don't necessarily know that that person is right, but you do know that you would need to know a lot in order to dismiss them, right? Mm-hmm. So let's just say, okay, you've got Luc Montagnier, one of his positions, you know, the thing for which he got the prize, the discovery of HIV, right? His later change of position involved his... Uh, emerging belief that HIV, the virus that he discovered, which nobody disagrees exists, is a co-traveler with AIDS and not causal. So Mm -hmm. his new belief down-regulates, downgrades the importance of the discovery for which he got the Nobel Prize. Of his own contribution. Right. So in a court, we would call that like statement against interest, Mm -hmm. right? You're more likely to believe this because it's not something you would be expected to say because it's good for you to say it, right? right? So, okay, that's interesting. Does the fact that a somebody who, you know, is capable enough to get a Nobel Prize would reach this uh, paradoxical conclusion about the very thing for which they got the prize, that's interesting. Even more interesting when you get to the fact that uh, he wasn't the only Nobel laureate to reach that conclusion, right? Right? Carrie Mullis, who also recently died and also was on the other side. He he died at the very beginning, maybe even just before, before COVID. Yeah. Um, but he had already ended up on the wrong side of Anthony Fauci, right? Um, he was alarmed by Anthony Fauci, and he was also alarmed by the uh, use of his invention for uh, for testing for things like viruses because he knew PCR to be so sensitive yeah. that the cycle threshold issue made it possible to abuse it very easily. It was yeah. not an appropriate diagnostic tool. He won the Nobel for the... 
I guess we would say invention, invention in the case of, of polymerase chain reaction, as opposed to the discovery um, in the case of Montagnier's prize of, of HIV. And actually, there's a connection. This is a connection that will come back uh, in, in a few minutes, if I can remember it. Um, but the connection is, like many of our best tricks in medicine, PCR is, yes, it's an invention and a brilliant one. But it is borrowed almost entirely from nature, right? Right. Well, that's why I sort of pause. I'm like, it's it's an invention, um, but but it uses it. It's inspired by and uses many of the tricks that nature has used. Let's put it this way: it, it, its primary tools are enzymes that we could not have written. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not even close. We just borrowed them from nature, and they do what they do, and you know they can be modified, but uh, but we just don't know enough to to do it. Okay, so. We've got this process of fringe making, mm -hmm. right? That has nothing to do. It's, you know, actually, you know what it is? It's an exact parallel to that thing we just described, right? This is the manufacture of an artificial fringe, like in the center of something, right? It's like you've got a carpet and you decide to put a fringe somewhere <laughs> in the middle of it in order that people don't pay attention to the stain or whatever, right? Because these people aren't fringe, yeah. right? Now, again, you don't know whether Luc Montagnier knows something far beyond what you understand at the point he says, no, no, HIV is not causing AIDS. You don't know whether he's goofed right. or he's got some deep insight. But what you do know is that you can't casually dismiss it, mm -hmm. especially in light of the fact that he's going after Having his own... Having won the Nobel, he's out of kook territory. He, he could be a kook, right. but the point is... A, what gets you to that level in science is something unusual. So at the point he says something really unusual and counterintuitive, especially something that downgrades the importance of his own discovery, mm -hmm. right? You have to listen. And then yep. at the point that you find another heterodox Nobel laureate, right, who has reached the same conclusion, Still doesn't make them right, but it does mean, hey, how much would you have to know before you were in a position to say, yeah, these people, they, they've lost the thread, right? Right. You'd have to look, you'd have to know a ton, but instead, the point is, oh, well, that's a crazy. Everybody knows HIV causes AIDS. It's like, well, okay, everybody knows that, but you're now, it, you know, it's rather a lot like uh, Robert Malone, right? You want to say Robert Malone doesn't know what he's talking about with respect to the safety of these vaccines. Really? Then who does? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, if anybody is likely to have insight, it would be Robert Malone. And if anybody was likely to be corrupt in the direction of thinking that they were safer than they are, you'd expect it to be Malone because that would yeah. make his invention that much more useful. Well, and there are a lot of these sleights of hand and they, they all have some there's some differences between them, but another one that comes to mind is, well, everyone knows that VAERS isn't reliable, that the you know vaccine adverse event reporting system isn't reliable. Like, oh, well, then what are we using? Right. Oh, oh we don't have anything but that? Like, okay, if we accept the, well, everyone knows that uh, initial, like, you can ignore the man behind the curtain part of the argument, um, there's almost always a, like, well, then who or what or you know, on what basis do you know that? You know, they did exactly this thing to me on the mice, too. I, mm -hmm. Every time I tried to raise this issue about, hey, you've created an evolutionary environment in your mouse breeding colonies that has created mice that are lying to you and telling you that <laughs> drugs are safe, right? Yep. I got back. It's amazing how often people were like, everybody knows the mice are broken. 
And it's like, look, first of all, if everyone knows the mice are broken and you're using them for drug safety testing, then that's on you. Mm-hmm. Second of all, there's no reason they have to be broken this way. I can tell you how to fix the evolutionary mm-hmm. environment in those colonies. And the point is you're not interested because you just feel like, well, I'm in the know like everybody else, you know, and you're on the fringe. And it's like, no, the fringe is in the center of the goddamn carpet. Well, and again, I mean, that it's, it's a social argument as opposed to an argument about reality or about or about science, right? Like, you're telling me something I already knew, maybe, but two things, right? Like, you were, in fact, telling them, you were you were telling them something they already knew, but with so much more precision that you could actually, you actually had a solution for it. And, and um, the idea that because they knew something in that territory in advance doesn't clear them of the responsibility for therefore basing all of their science on a a bad model. Well, I was telling them something that they could plausibly dismiss as something they knew. Right. They didn't really know it, right? The fact of the the telomere elongation, A, which didn't have to happen, that was the result of them not realizing that a colony is an evolutionary environment and not Mm -hmm. realizing that it was going to have a particular uh, effect. But the point is... Yes, all models are imperfect, right? A mouse is not a person. There are going to be ways in which a mouse is an imperfect model for people. Mm -hmm. We all know that. Um, The fact that it's broken in a particular way, especially a solvable way, right? You have to be a fool to dismiss the insight into how it's broken because if you could fix it, you know, if, if everybody knows the mice are broken, then wouldn't it be cool to have some mice that were less broken? Right. You know, so anyway, it's a it's an interesting I guess the point is it's all specific versions of a very generic game. Right. The powerful people are constantly fringing their (laughs) detractors. Right. No matter how central those detractors are in the case of, you know, Corey, Tess Laurie. Uh, Peter McCullough, Robert Malone. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, that's a process of like forcibly uh, painting someone as a fringe when that's not not what they are. Okay, so let's try to connect this up to some some other stuff. All right, so the weird thing is, and this surprised me at the time, I had numerous conversations with uh, people who had not taken a public position but privately were suspicious about lab leak. As effectively we were winning the argument on lab leak mm-hmm. right i had numerous conversations this is a little bit of a surprise that we're winning usually the enemy is so powerful that even if you win the argument hands down you don't win the perception of the argument right because it is so capable of wielding its propaganda machine to to prevent recognition yep. you know as it's done with the mouse telomere thing for example right i haven't won that argument anywhere except analytically <laughs> um <laughs> But, okay, so uh, here's what's happened with LabLeak. Like, LabLeak went from a stigmatizable fringe to something unignorable where Jon Stewart signaled, hey, it's safe for normal people to see normal things with their regular eyes and, you know, (laughs) call a spade a spade or whatever it is. Um, And now it's taken this weird uh, reversal. 
right? Where suddenly as the world has moved on to thinking about Ukraine and not thinking about COVID so directly, there have been, there's an emergence of new papers arguing that actually the puzzle's been solved and it is a natural origin uh, via the wet market, Mm -hmm. right? So Zach, would you put up the uh, Forbes article I sent you? So is it not going to turn out to be those uh, frozen ferret badger steak popsicles, or is it going to be those? Because um, I was I was sort of excited about the prospect of those maybe entering the market, not the that market, but you know maybe these American papers market. are not uh, completely clear. Okay. Uh, so anyway, if you'll so here what we have a classic version of the middle ground scramble that we talked about uh, maybe two months ago. So the middle ground scramble being people who had not nailed the issue of the lab leak now emerging to carve out a middle ground um, position. And in any case, here's here's a great example in Forbes. And uh, anyway, if you scroll down to the end of it, Zach, you'll see he covers the three papers that have recently emerged. Uh Back up, back up. I think you might even be in the next article. Well, anyway, I'm not going to waste. Ah, okay, yep, yeah, stop, stop. Go back down a little bit. See, first paper by yep. George Gao. Okay, so there are three papers um, that uh, are being pointed to as suggesting, hey, finally we've solved the problem, and it turns out that um, that it was uh, it was the the wet market all along. Right now, these papers are not. The first one is arguably substantive, but it's not meaningful. It doesn't reach the conclusion that is derived. Well, actually, from it. I mean, I, so this is the first time I've seen this Forbes article, and I haven't looked at the Gao et al. paper. But um, according to this Forbes article, the Gao et al. paper says that no virus was detected in the animal swabs covering 18 species of animals in the market. And quote, in other words, the virus was found at the marketplace, but not in any of the animals, suggested that infected people walking through the market were the source of those positive samples. Where did those people get the virus? This paper doesn't answer that question. Like for, right. I'm not trying to swear, but like <laughs> people in the city where the first cases are publicly recognized to have been, which is practically across the street from the laboratory, uh, were infected. That is no kind of smoking gun with regard to origins at the market. People were walking through a market and were infected. And there's no evidence of the stuff anywhere else. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it, it's it's nothing. In the market. But yeah. then, okay, so that's the George Gao paper. So what about these other two papers? Did they yeah. do it? Could you scroll down just a little bit? Okay. So these other two papers, um, interestingly, do not nail down uh, what is claimed here either. And in fact, interestingly, who would you expect to be a co-author on both of these? Can't be Peter Daszak because that would be spotted too easily. It's going to be what, Christian Anderson? Christian Anderson. Right. So Christian Anderson, all right, I hear you asking, what is a Christian Anderson? Um, Christian Anderson is the guy who was caught red-handed in Fauci's uh, email exchanges. What? It's not the ferret badgers. It's the raccoon dogs. Raccoon dogs. Right. (laughs) Well, the thing is, um, I don't know if you've ever been to the Wuhan seafood market, but you get the ferret badger popsicles and the raccoon dog steaks from the same vending machine. So, Mm, Yeah, that'll do it. Um, 
All right. So, Zach, could you put up uh, the Fauci email response to Christian Anderson? Okay, perfect. So here uh, is, so this is an email from Fauci to Anderson just saying, thanks, Christian, talk soon on the call. But it uh, has the email to which he is responding. This is Christian Anderson's email to Anthony Fauci. 25 he, months ago. Who he calls oh, no, Tony. Six months ago. And the key thing is very is at the end of the letter here, where he says, uh, da, da, da. I should mention that after discussions earlier today, Eddie, Bob, Mike, and myself all find the genome of SARS-CoV-2 inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. Okay, that is Christian Anderson in a private email telling Anthony Fauci, uh, this looks like it came from a lab. Okay, now put up the proximal origins paper. I believe it did. All right. Well, then I will just tell you about the proximal origin. You could plug proximal origins into uh, a search engine, not Google. Um, but in any case, the proximal origins paper is Christian Anderson's paper. It's co-authored with a number of other people in which he, after having privately said to Anthony Fauci, hey, the genome of this um, virus is inconsistent with evolutionary theory in the proximal origins paper which you don't really have entirely here you've got a reference to it um but click the doi yep there it is okay um so let us uh, to the editor and then you've got a bunch of stuff here about the coronavirus here at the end of the second paragraph it says our analysis clearly show that SARS-CoV-2 is not a laboratory construct or a purposefully manipulated virus. Now, this is Christian Anderson lying, okay? And let me tell you why I say lying. So we've talked about this paper before, but if you would scroll back up, Zach, I'd just like to see when, when this is dated. So this is dated um, just about exactly two years ago. That email interchange that we saw was from January 31st and February 1st. Um, usually, of course, it would take a lot longer than six weeks even to get published, but yeah, this is, you know, this, this is a pandemic, whatever. So, um, but we have less than six weeks or, you know, just about six weeks between, um, what is now a publicly available email saying inconsistent with, uh, basically a natural origin according to, uh, what we know about evolution and, uh, a, a coming out, uh, coming out guns blazing saying this is this is natural it's inconsistent with a laboratory construct or purposely manipulated right. virus now, now people can learn a lot of things well you know, data so can Anderson, data can show up anderson has been asked to explain his reversal and he has not compellingly done so but mm -hmm. even i leave open the possibility that his perspective could have evolved what I don't leave open the possibility of is that he could have written this paper and not understood the way in which it was misleading, okay? Mm -hmm. So what the paper argues, as we have discussed once or twice before on Dark Horse, is that this virus has to have come from nature because we scientists don't know enough to have basically written the edits that make it so effective at inv invading human cells. His mm -hmm. point is, look, we're just not that good, right? 
Now, the reason that that is not just an error, but is clearly a lie, is that we have another mechanism for improving something like a virus, mm -hmm. right? We use evolution to solve problems that we don't know enough to solve directly, right? We use serial passaging to get evolution to favor variants that can infect things we wouldn't know how to describe uh, the solution to. And so basically the point is what isn't in that paper is the proximal origins paper is any analysis that says this didn't come from a lab with serial passaging used as the mechanism to generate it. Well, here we have actually the last sentence of the paper. You can show my screen if you want, Zach, because I, I just pulled up the paper on my on my computer in a PDF form. Irrespective, final sentence of the Anderson et al. 2020, uh, March 17th, paper, 2020, uh, paper on proximal origins of SARS-CoV-2. Quote, irrespective of the exact mechanisms by which SARS-CoV-2 originated via natural selection, the ongoing surveillance of pneumonia in humans and other animals is clearly of utmost importance. Via natural selection is is effectively doing very, very heavy lifting now, and it, there, and it always does, yep. of course. But um, what will not be obvious to most readers of this paper, and what I don't think would have been obvious to me five years ago, is that he can mean there entirely zoonotic origin, or he can mean natural selection through serial passaging in a lab. No, I think I think he has to mean natural selection in the wild. That artificial selection. Uh, I don't. I, don't I, I think he's. I think it's covered. I, I. I don't think it's covered. But in any case, um, he clearly lies in this paper. Uh, by saying that this has to have had a natural origin by virtue of the fact that we don't know enough to have written it, okay? That clearly elides what he and others in this field absolutely knew, which is that they had other mechanisms at their disposal, and what Christian Anderson himself clearly knew in his email exchange with Fauci, where uh, he... Uh, he says that the genome is inconsistent with expectation from evolutionary theory. So to find him now as co-author on these late emerging reversals, right? Two of these three late emerging reversal papers, right? How were how the later? So now you're talking about the papers that were cited in the Forbes, in the Forbes article. article yeah. How are they reversals of his position? They are reversals of the acceptance that lab leak was. So the mainstream accepted that lab leak was a viable explanation. Many of us had recognized that it was the explanation to which all of the evidence which pointed in any direction actually pointed. Right, but they're not reversals for him. No, no. He is returning to his original position. My point is the narrative. But, but I, 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 sorry, I just I, I don't I don't see how this is an inconsistency on his part. This feels it's like it's very consistent. It's not okay. The inconsistency is the world moved on and it stopped fighting us on lab leak because it kept losing. I mean, Christian Anderson literally uh, left Twitter. He he was a laughing stock. Mm -hmm. right, for having written that Proximal Origins paper. He disappeared for months okay. uh, from Twitter. And the point is, the world moves on to Ukraine, and it's like, let's go back and get that lab leak thing. Can't, can't be lab leak because it vindicates too many, too many voices that we don't want uh, vindicated, right? Well, and I, I mean, I think maybe, maybe more important to many people than vindicating voices that were right uh, is that if if lab leak, if the last two years um, can be blamed on yes, extraordinarily bad 
policy that may have been intentionally bad. Um, but more ultimately than that, uh, this kind of research, which indeed, uh, at least within the U.S., Obama put a hiatus on and uh, and then it just got shunted over to China. By Fauci. Uh, by, you know, with, you know, under the direction of Fauci, uh, then really the whole world should be expected to say, at the very least, no more of this, no more of this. And, you know, that is part, yeah, there are all sorts of reasons that we need, to, that it's actually totally relevant from a public health perspective, from a virology perspective, uh, from both individual and population level responses to this perspective, uh, whether or not this is a naturally occurring zoonotic virus um, versus something that was created sort of chimera-like in a lab. Um, but it also has specific ramifications for whether or not this kind of research should be allowed to continue at all. Well, it's even stronger than you're stating it because really there are two interpretations and they're polar opposites, right? Two, interp two interpretations of what? Uh, of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If the pandemic emerged from the Wuhan Institute, right, and then if you take my analysis, for example, from my unheard article, where I said, actually, this was a jump that was unlikely to happen without human help, mm -hmm. right, then the point is, you must not do this research, because this research is the most likely source of such a pandemic, and mm -hmm. maybe by orders of magnitude, right? If, on the other hand, this emerged from nature, then they get to make the argument that they made that made this happen in the first place, which is we have no choice but to do this research. In fact, with respect to SARS-CoV-2, we hadn't put our foot on the gas hard enough. We weren't ahead enough to do anything useful with SARS-CoV-2, and that's because we hadn't done enough of this research, right? Mm -hmm. And so the point is those, it's one or the other of these worlds, and it for those of us who believe that what we've got is a laboratory origin and a large unlikely to be jumped gap between nature and humans the point is oh boy somehow we have to not not only not do this research we have to not allow this research mm -hmm. because a pandemic potentially a much worse one could emerge from a lab quite easily right mm -hmm. so um anyway that's that's where we are so in in effect they are resurrecting the structures Oh, I wanted to connect one more thing here, which is we talked a week or two ago about the fact that the quote-unquote peer review system that we have, the system of uh, grant-getting and therefore back-scratching, reciprocal back-scratching that exists in the publication apparatus and in the grant-getting apparatus, turns scientists, it trains them to be salesmen. Mm -hmm. And the basic point is what you're getting as you point out, as a sales pitch for future gain-of-function research, right? Mm -hmm. And it's happening basically at the moment when the world, you know, like we all understood that it was not okay to laugh at the lab leak hypothesis, right? And then Ukraine happened, and then papers emerge, and people may get the vague sense that, yes, for a while we thought it might have been a lab leak, but then it turned out that it wasn't. There was, wasn't there that scientific work, you know? Uh, that that actually did show that it was the the market, and of course that work doesn't exist. And it, you know, I don't know why they didn't keep Christian Anderson's name off these papers. It's too obvious. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, he's there. The guy who 
reversed himself, you know, didn't say in his Proximal Origins paper what he had said to Anthony Fauci, right, is on these things. And final point, this isn't just lab leak, right? Who is Christian Anderson's boss at the Scripps Institute? I don't know. It's Eric Topol, right? Who's that? Eric, I I know. (laughs) Yes, you do know. But uh, Eric Topol has made the rounds uh, on early treatment and vaccine safety and effectiveness. He's been a great champion of these vaccines, right? And he went very... Not exactly a champion of early treatment, however. No, quite Mm -hmm. the opposite. And he went very directly after us on Sam Harris's podcast. I believe, I can't remember the exact quote, but I think he called me a villain of some kind. Um, but in, in any case, the point is, look, you're a piss poor villain, man. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not great at it. (laughs) Um, but you know, you just can't manage to stay on the side of darkness. Yeah. Try as you might. And you don't even try. All right. I'm going to think about that later. There were a couple of reversals in there, but, um, but anyway, the, the point, the point is right. You've got some powerful structure. I don't know what job it's doing. But I can see the symptoms. The symptoms involve creating an artificial fringe where there isn't one. uh, Involves uh, making sure not to vindicate um, people who were right early as they embarrass the mainstream, which is too corrupt to get things right, at least publicly. Yeah. Right? It's the same game again and again. And... uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. I mean, nothing to do with what you're talking about for those watching. It's just the dog just knocked over a piece of art, shook herself off, wandered off. I'm beginning to think she's in on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she also makes a very poor villain, however. Yeah. Uh, being, the worst. Being a fact. Labrador and all. Yes. There's just, there's, just, there's just no pinning anything to her. Yeah. Oh, so I guess there is one last piece as I'm connecting things together. Okay. You're going to be sorry you asked me to do that. Um could you, put you up, said you wanted to. Well, I did at the end, but I'm doing so, it at the beginning, which is making it a well, mess. Well, we're closing in on the end at this point. All right. Probably. Um, Maybe Zach, can you put up the New York Times time. article? Which, what, what's the subject? The New York Times article is on the closely related subject of Hunter Biden's laptop. Oh, for You don't have it? Okay, so let me just tell you that the New York Times this week acknowledged that Hunter Biden's laptop uh, laptop is indeed the genuine article, right? Signaling that it is now fine for people to discuss in polite company the awkward situation of Hunter Biden being a, I don't know, a crazed maniac. Point Uh, point of order. Yep. Um, I don't know, two, three episodes ago, you brought to everyone's attention uh, the new formal definitions and descriptions of mis, dis, and malinformation yep. um, that were published in, gosh, I don't remember the exactly. DHS. The Department of Homeland Security, obviously. And what I didn't see in the descriptions of mis, dis, and malinformation, which are keeping us very safe. Oh, so safe. Um, was a description of at what point, um, having having had a piece of information or indeed a person um, declared to be a purveyor of mis, dis, or malinformation, when reversals happen, yes. as apparently has happened has happened here, and I know I have I have been avidly paying no attention to this story, um, but what's the what's the protocol? Like, what is the process You're missing. for becoming Unmiss, undis, or unmal informed, oh, no. or to no longer, you know, to have said something. Oh, no. 
Mm-hmm. It's not like that. Oh. You you have missed the glory of malinformation. Because here's the thing. Let's say you take the laptop story. We'll need a reminder. So malinformation is it's true, but we don't like it right now. It's true, but it causes you to mistrust the government. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's- Okay. Right? Okay, so so check me out here. Mm -hmm. Do you remember back during the uh, election uh, of 2020? Which one? Yeah. The the recent presidential election. Do you remember that fella from The Apprentice was running against that fella who's um, lost his marbles? Indeed. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some of us at the time, you will remember, were quite alarmed about the Hunter Biden laptop. And the reason we were alarmed was that there were some remarkable things there. A, it suggested a kind of out of controlness right there in the first family, but that's obviously not the presidential candidate. But B, much more importantly, it suggested that Hunter was selling his father's influence. Right. He was peddling influence. Where was he peddling influence? Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the point is, wow, this is really dangerous. You remember what we were guilty of at the time? It was misinformation because the whole idea that this was really Hunter Biden's laptop and that those things were true, that was Russian disinformation. Okay. Now the New York Times acknowledges it was not Russian. Keep track. People saying this yes. were were engaged in misinformation because they had fallen prey to Russian disinformation. Right. The Russians had But planted- now it turns out it's malinformation because it is true, but it's still bad for the government. Now you're getting it. Okay, so the point is, no, this is this is great. We we didn't when when this was misinformation, mm-hmm. according to the DHS's modern taxonomy of terrorism, which the, surely they were they had right. a private version of back then. When this was misinformation, mm-hmm. because the Russians had planted this laptop with false stuff on it, so that mm. we would believe it, right? Yes. When it was misinformation, it was terrorism. Okay. Now that it turns out, according to the New York Times, the laptop is genuine. It is malinformation and, and therefore terrorism. Still terrorism. Right, exactly. Now, why is the New York Times not guilty so of terrorism? So the addition of malinformation to the uh, to the taxonomy yeah. allows for there to be no mechanism by which you, you have to slide between categories because you can keep track if you want to, but regardless, Sweet. you're definitely guilty of terrorism. I told you this was going to happen. Yeah. You're putting okay. it all together. The mm-hmm. fact is you can't be resurrected for having had the Hunter Biden laptop story correct back during the election. Still a terrorist. Right, exactly. You will not be vindicated, right? Because we don't vindicate terrorists because they're bad people. Yeah. Right? Okay. So Otherwise, now- they wouldn't be terrorists. Yeah, exactly. Or something. Right, or something. So yeah. anyway, the, the the real mystery is why the New York Times is not going to be, uh, I don't know, closed down over its airing of this um, well, on our laptop story, which no, is... No, there's, I mean, because, and, you know, I don't, I don't have the taxonomy. I don't have access to the inside thinking of the DHS, of course. I'm not up to their level. Um, but because the New York Times was working in the interests of the government back when it turns out to have been spreading misinformation itself, mm-hmm. that was the opposite of malinformation, which gave it a pass. It ge- it was like, a, like, you go right to go. You pass go. You collect your $200, and that's going to protect you. Oh. When engaging in anti-malinformation, you have a get-out-of-misinformation-free card. I believe you have just grabbed the brass ring because what you have effectively done is you have Mm -hmm. said the only cure 
for malinformation is anti-malinformation, mm-hmm. right? This is a Kendiism, but extended into a new realm. <laughs> Kendiism, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, and mm-hmm. I think the New York yeah. Times is inherently anti-malinformation. And inherently Kendiist. That they are. <laughs> um, this has gotten silly. This has gotten Well, you know, the DHS is a silly organization. A little bit too silly. Um, what better moment to talk about uh, trans athletes? I I knew we were we were going to get there. Yeah. Can um, we can we can we wrap it into that brass ring moment though? Yeah. That's the well, you like you you said you saw a connection. Um, uh, so far, we've done great on the connecting stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mm, Leah Thomas, uh, born and went through puberty, and indeed competed in swimming competitions. Um, as male, just won the just won one or more uh, NCAA swimming championships in the women's divisions. Uh, the New York Times, oh, for again, I chose the wrong week to switch to Brave and to oh, here it is. Here it's going to be. Um, here we have uh, the New York Times. You can show my screen here. Um, Leah Thomas wins an NCAA swimming title. There Leah is. Um, before I say anything more about this, I I would like to know what the hell the University of Pennsylvania is thinking and um, what this person's parents think about this remarkable transformation from loser to winner is really what the transformation is because there hasn't been that much transformation of the underlying maleness of, of this person. What we find in this, in this article is Thomas's triumph in Atlanta. Indeed, her very presence at the swimming championships as a contender came amid a far larger storm, particularly in state houses and right-wing media about sports participation by transgender girls and women. It is incredible, it is utterly incredible that recognition of a, depending upon how you count, 500 million to 2 billion with a B year old reality can be dismissed by the New York Times as the purview of right wing media. Why, why would the New York Times, the gray lady, is that what it's called? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would the New York Times, which once prided itself on being the source of news for Americans, at least the, the source of print news for Americans, pride itself on abandoning all reason? And I mean, this the the, the binary nature of sex in our lineage, which is at least five hundred million years old, is recognizable by everyone. It is recognizable even. If you're a cat <laughs> who doesn't have all of his parts anymore, he's still a boy. Yeah. He's still a boy. And this, oh, sorry, I didn't realize I was still on, but you can keep me on here, Zach. Let me just read one more, sure. one more um, excerpt from this New York Times article. Thomas, again, born, went through puberty, uh, competed as male. 
Thomas and her rise, though, forced the typically plodding NCAA to grapple more quickly with a subject that scientists are still examining and its consequences for sports competitions. Comprehensive research on athletes is still lacking, but early studies suggest that suppressing testosterone in transgender women decreases muscle mass and hemoglobin levels, reducing how much oxygen can be carried through the bloodstream. Most of the changes occur within the first year of hormone suppression, but transgender women may still have more muscle mass than their cisgender peers even after three years. As some insist that no amount of testosterone suppression can undo the physiological changes linked to male puberty, like taller height and larger hands and feet, others dispute that transgender women have a built-in advantage and have argued that inclusion should outweigh competition. I have a few things to say here. Yeah, Inclusion should outweigh competition? This is sport. If you want to go swim with your buddies and there's some question about whether or not you want someone to participate, you can talk about whether or not, in this case, inclusion should win the day. But in sport, it's about competition. It's not about, hey, I want to compete because guess why? I know I will win because I'm going to be cheating by competing in that division. So here are just a, f- a few. There's, there's abundant abundant evidence here. But um, I happen to have, you can you can show my screen here, I happen to have written a article back in 2019, over three years ago, for my Patreon um, that I have opened up, it's publicly available, should trans women compete against women in professional sports? No. <laughs> and I, I joke here that this is a short article. I did go on though, uh, to uh, to, to make a number of arguments, and I recommend I, I recommend that you follow them. But one of the things I do is also um, point to this uh, this table, which it turns out here. Let me see if I can find it. Is in no okay, Zach. Just give me my screen back for a second while I find yeah uh, the table in question. Oh boy. Nothing is working. Oh, that's snakes. That's totally different, isn't it? Um, okay, well, I don't. Unfortunately, it got closed when, when my computer crashed earlier. So I'm going to go back in here and just show you this here. I will I will link to the actual, actual paper that this is from. Um, sex, you can show my screen here. Sex differences that suggest male design for combat in humans. This is from, if memory serves, a... Uh, um, sorry, 2012 paper called The Importance of Physical Strength to Human Males. And just some of the, some of the ways uh, that males and females are different is that males have greater upper body strength, taller bodies, heavier bodies, higher basal metabolic rates, faster reaction times, thicker bones in the jaw, faster mental rotation and spatial visual, visualization. That's the bit where you get shown something, you're asked what it would happen, what would it look like if you rotate it 90 degrees to the left, something like that. Uh, more accurate throwing, more accurate blocking of thrown objects, more interest in the practice of compact skills, <clears throat> combat skills. Stronger bones, greater bone density, specifically in the arms, on and on and on and on. And more recently, and here um, you can show, yeah, you're still on my screen, good. Um, um, Here we have this paper published in Sports Medicine in, I think it went online first in 2020 and it was officially published in 2021. Uh, a review by Emma Hilton and Tommy Lundberg called Transgender Women in the Female Category of Sport, Perspectives on Testosterone Suppression and Performance Advantage. Um, a very compelling, 
review of all of the evidence, which finds to no one's surprise if they are thinking carefully about this, that taking a single metric for whether or not you were male or female, which is to say circulating levels of testosterone at the moment, and deciding that that's the thing that you're going to count and, and use to decide whether or not you're male or female and use to decide whether or not you have any advantage is woefully inaccurate. I mean, in, inadequate. And, um, frankly, if you've, if you were born male and if you went through puberty male and, um, and you have recently been on cross sex hormones, but retain basically every other, other manifestation of maleness, Competing against women is cheating. That's just true. All right. I've got a number of things I want to add. Yeah. One, I always... We are facing a an epidemic of sophistry across every domain. A true epidemic. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And the point is, I hear mm-hmm. you making points that shouldn't require they don't need to be made frankly i mean look you can win this argument in one move if you're held to a reasonable standard Mm -hmm. right does anything that we do in the medical practice of transitioning males to trans femaleness change the height of the individuals who have been transitioned it doesn't Mm -hmm. right or the skeletal structure Maybe, right. maybe bone density. But my, my but, point is even yeah. just one parameter mm-hmm. that the fact is, you know, were you a tall guy? Yes. Are you going to be a, a tall woman? We don't know. Uh, <laughs> yes, we do. In fact, you're going to be an exceptionally tall woman because you were a tall guy and you're not going to get shorter. I mean, it, maybe, maybe you get a little shorter, but you don't get a lot shorter. So anyway, my point is this is obvious, right? This is, this is really an emperor has no clothes moment. Yeah. Is it fair for somebody to go through puberty as male, declare themselves female, have procedures, whatever they are, and then join women's sports? No. Simply no, because one thing we can say is this doesn't fully reverse the transitions that male puberty uh, causes the body to go through, right? Right. It's a simple, simple conclusion. Pre-puberty, boys and girls have much more similar both interests and skill sets. Right. Now, um, second thing is, oh, the New York Times is interested in the question about how we, you know, balance the desire to be inclusive in sport uh, with the uncertainty of the evidence as scientists mull over this question, right? Follow the science, New York Times. Find better scientists. Any scientist who's <laughs> yes. confused by this isn't really good at their job. Go look at the Hilton and Lundberg paper. And, you know, one one thing, so I have actually Hilton, Emma Hilton and uh, Colin Wright, and I have written a couple of pieces together. So I, I, I know her and she's terrific. Um, but one of the things that we had talked about sort of behind the scenes was people would ask us, like, well, you know, what, what's, you know, what are the primary, what's the primary literature? What's the scientific literature on the idea that men and women are different? Right. And like, it's, it's actually too obvious ever to have been written down that way. Yes. What is the scientific evidence that plants are inferior at warfare? You know, <laughs> 
I don't have it. Well, if you can't produce a piece of primary literature, it must not be true. true. And furthermore, I'm really hoping that you have a randomized control trial for that. (laughs) You better. You better have a randomized control trial because otherwise the, you know, the trees that are best at warfare could, (laughs) I don't know, something. But okay. So, you know, the New York Times is, is, is wrestling. It is grappling with the question of inclusion versus scientific certitude. Oh boy, are they wrestling. Which is total sophistry because I would point (laughs) out that the very nature of women's sports uh, makes uh, clear that inclusion is not the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Why are men not ordinarily included in women's sports, right? right? Because there is a value in having sports in which women can actually compete on a level playing field with other women and not face the biological disadvantage uh, that sexual dimorphism has exposed them to. What about the woman who came in fourth in the race that Leah Thomas won. Right. Why Uh, isn't she included on the podium where she belongs? Exactly. Now, uh, I'm also, you asked a question about what Leah Thomas's parents think. Yeah, I I did. And, you know, in general, I don't, I don't love that sort of approach. But in this case, I really do, I really do wonder actually legitimately. Well, I, I found myself in a different place on this story. Okay. Which was wondering about Leah Thomas. Mm-hmm. And here's the point. Um, uh, let me just be clear about this. We have said many times when we have discussed transness on this uh, on this channel that uh, we do not regard transness as inherently a malfunction, right? There, there's too much transness in too many populations, and there are longstanding traditions about how it is addressed. Now, that is not to say anything about medical transition or anything like that. However... Or the rate at which it is prevalent now right, in the West. right which could be the result of all kinds of disruptive influences. But it is not inherently malfunction, okay? But here's the point. What does it say about a person that they go through life male, they Mm -hmm. go through puberty male, right? They go through competitions male. They go through competitions male. They then, let's say that they genuinely feel they're born in the wrong body. Fine. Do they not look at their victory in a competition like this and feel embarrassment? Right? The point is, look, okay, so you're trans. Why are you picking a realm where you have an advantage from your having transitioned rather than having been born in the other body? Why wouldn't you pick a realm where you're not cheating and everybody knows that you're not cheating? Right? right. So I guess the question is, what is the state of mind of somebody who could actually go home with a medal from an event and feel good about it? Right. I don't understand yeah. the feeling good about it. And I, it's not that I, you know, I want people who experience transness, whatever it is, to find their true selves and to feel good about it. Right. But this this oughtn't make anyone feel good. Right. This is that's right. This is cheating. And, you know, getting a medal through cheating, you shouldn't look at the medal and feel good. Right. No, you, you, you should not. And um, the fact that a good part of the world can see what's wrong here is 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 one thing. And then that there's another part of the world that is somehow willfully blinding itself because it's been told that in order to be a good person, that's what you do. In order to be a good person, you uh, move the syringes out of your uh, 
Twitter bio and move in the Ukrainian flag. In order to be a good person, you talk about how amazing it is that Leah Thomas beat out a bunch of women in swimming, even though it's utterly obvious that this person would do so. There's no sportsmanship there. There's, you know, this person was a competent enough swimmer to be doing middlingly well as a male swimmer until basically yesterday. Of course, Leah Thomas is going to win against women. And if it were true that it is not true, but if it were true that there was some mechanism for reversing all of the advantages that come through uh, male physiology and male puberty, then there would be a well-defined literature that would describe the pattern so that right. we would know how many years had to pass with what kinds of therapies before the advantage had been neutralized and you could join women's sports. And the reason that there is no well-defined literature and the reason that the New York Times finds itself grappling with the question of scientists who can't figure this one out is because this is political. It is not scientific, right? Yeah. No, the that, the inability right. to get to the answer is the point. And, um, you know, and I guess... How many different realms do we need to see nonsense masquerading as science before we say, oh my God, what has taken over our scientific system and what kind of danger is implied by that breakage? Yeah. And I guess I, I finished that Patreon article that I, that I showed um, by saying, also, uh, I, will call, I will call people trans women. Uh, I have avoided doing that in this particular case uh, because this looks... This looks like transitional sophistry at some level. Um, but what I won't do is call women cis women or men cis men, although it's not really that surprising that that's not where this fight is taking place. And I will also not say, nor do I believe that, given, again, the 500 million to 2 billion years of evolution uh, that, is, that is part of our lineage, that the statement trans women are women is true. Women are women. Trans women is a new category. And it does not have a 500 million to 2 billion year history at all. It is a new category. And... Uh, we can be kind and compassionate and um, and respectful without throwing out reality and being unkind, uncompassionate, and disrespectful to all of the women who are being hurt by this, the children who are being harmed. Uh, the you know it, it goes on and on and on and society and I just are are reckoning with reality that takes a hit every time we are told to utter one of these completely wrongheaded and insane sentences like trans women are women. Yeah. Now, I think I would say my policy is I will treat trans women as women or trans men as men for every purpose where that does not harm somebody else. And the basic point is at the point you get to things like prisons or sports, uh, then mm -hmm. we have to we have to look at the reality. Now, I would point out I went to Leah Thomas's Wikipedia page, and um, it 
it it has this shocking feature, which I, I would recommend people go to it and read it. It's not the first time I've seen it, where the thing is written in such a way so as to tread carefully around the modern convention of not, quote unquote, misgendering, right? And so the point is, it is cleverly written. Even from before, it's like it's like the... The sex equivalent of dead naming is like dead sexing. Right, exactly. It's dead sexing. Mm-hmm. And um, so what they do is in places where it would be, you know, obviously this person has a history as a boy and then as a man. And competed the, as a boy and a man. Right. Mm-hmm. And so instead of saying, you know. And didn't win races. Know, he but, competed, blah, 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 then transitioned. Now she competes, right? That would be mm-hmm. a literal if we accept that she is a she that is a literal description instead what they do is where they would say he they Mm -hmm. say thomas right the last name um right so as not to be so as to be gender neutral and then at the point that the person has transitioned they say she and uh, even worse than this in the case uh, of um chelsea manning Mm -hmm. right I have seen the New York Times, Rolling Stone magazine, and I believe Wikipedia all engage the fiction that Chelsea Manning delivered documents to Julian Assange, which did not happen. That is historically false, right? Right. So here's the question. If this is all so clear... Because because I can't even remember his name at the time. Bradley. Bradley Manning did that. And later transitioned in prison, maybe even right. Uh, came out in in prison. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's like it's like the opposite of reality, and it does it does once again feel very postmodernist. It's what I currently believe is not only reality, but it has always been reality, and the fact that I didn't always believe it doesn't change anything, which also leaves me open to changing my mind tomorrow, at which point that has always been reality. And if you believe me today and then don't update your understanding of my belief of reality tomorrow in keeping with my understanding, then you've slighted me. It's a microaggression. For God's sake, it might be a mega aggression. Who knows? It's actually, it's a kind of weird immunity from hypocrisy or from being, you know, convicted of hypocrisy right to change your mind you should acknowledge that you've changed your mind Mm -hmm. to be able to go backwards and say oh i always i always believed that i always was that is nonsense and this actually comes to the the point for me which is the solution to this problem it wikipedia should absolutely be steadfast in being able to write i mean wikipedia is a dumpster fire at the moment um but Wikipedia of old that aspired to a neutral perspective should simply write stories that track the person's presentation, their gender, at the moment that incidents happen. Bradley Manning gave documents to Julian Assange uh, in prison. Bradley Manning came out and said he was Chelsea Manning and has been treated as Chelsea Manning ever since. Yeah. Right? That should be what's written. And the idea that we can't write that because we are treading lightly around sensitivities says that we are not dealing with objectivity. And I think the solution to this involves rational trans people confronting this. Right? And actually, yes. we saw this a bit. Mm-hmm. Caitlyn Jenner came out mm-hmm. uh, against the competition of women in, uh, of trans women in women's sports. Mm-hmm. And the basic point is, look, I'm defending women. It's the right thing to do. 
Um, and, you know, uh, uh, why am I forgetting? Uh, a Buck Angel yeah, has, Trampa. Also, Trampa has <laughs> yeah, also been very good, good on this issue. And so, look. No, there, I, are, there are a number. There are a number of people, most not quite as as public as them. But uh, I, I, I know some trans people, too, who are actively like going to, for instance, um, you know, state um, state hearings, trans people saying trans people should not be competing um, as the sex that they were not born to right. in 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 sport, trans women, and um, and it's it's powerful because these are people who actually do have the yes lived experience of of the of the pain and horror of the gender dysmorphia um, that actually causes some very tiny number of people um, to to transition, and the people who are abusing. Uh, the ability to transition and, for example, compete against, uh, right. you know, women. Those people are robbing trans people who are just trying to live a life with extra complexities in exactly. it. Exactly. Right? And so I really do hope that there is a, an emergence of, uh, you know, a wise consensus amongst trans people who spot how crazy this is. Indeed. Um, we... I've gone way longer than I thought we should, but I have one last thing, sure. if, if I may. Um, boy, I actually have five last things, but let's let's do this this one. Actually, two, very quickly, um, because we take on uh, woke and COVID woke uh, all the time, and many confuse uh, woke with being on the left um, because that is the claim. I found a really stupid anti-feminist right-wing take on Twitter this week that I thought I'd share because Wonderful. you know why why not why not point out the stupid wherever it shows up. Uh, so here it is, uh, Zach. Just briefly, if a woman hyphenates or doesn't take her husband's last name when she gets married, she doesn't respect him. So you can take that down now, so I can have my have my notes back. I really hope that's not true. <laughs> right. Um, this you know, there's there's a lot of places that I could go here, but this feels just as shallow and daft a point as the idea that if white women have a food cart in which they make burritos that they learned how to make when they were in Mexico, they're engaging in cultural appropriation and need to be shut down. And yes, that did happen in Portland a few years ago. And yes, they did have to shut down their business and they're done, right? And um, and boy, when I went looking into that story, I'm like, wow. You know, they admitted to looking at what the Mexican women were doing at some points when the when the women weren't totally uh, you know, interested in having them look. And so maybe they were actually thieving. It's like, OK, I'd like to know more about that. How come I'm only finding that in these stories that have already concluded that any time um, people from a different lineage make food of one, <laughs> of one lineage and that's cultural appropriation. That's dumb. This is also dumb. This is shallow and daft. It doesn't recognize the many, many ways that human beings have lived have have decided to track lineage and is it you know is it true that in a culture that has been um patrilineal which is just to say that we tend to track um lineage through the male line um that it is easier if everyone follows the same the same naming conventions yeah yeah it would be right um however 
in an era in which women have are recognized as having as much capacity and always, of course, have, but actually have um, just about as much opportunity, if not absolutely as much opportunity, if not in some places more opportunity at this point uh, than men to actually find uh, the way that they want to make a difference in the world, be it, you know, creative, analytical, exploring, writing, healing, whatever it is. The idea that one has to change their name from that of their father to that of their husband upon getting married is archaic and is disruptive of a woman's ability to, to make a life in the world. It has nothing to do with not respecting the man that she is marrying, just as a man taking, you know, just as, well, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways it has nothing to do with disrespecting the man that she's marrying. It is a recognition of a woman being a complete member of the partnership with goals that, and, and values and interests that are independent in the world. That there are now three entities. That there's the man and there's the woman and there's, there's the couple. And, you know, in our case, in our case, we decided that because of the culture that we live in, it was important and valuable uh, to give our children your name. Yep. And there was, I, I think we may have talked about this before, but there may, I don't even remember that we talked about that. We certainly talked about our names yep. a bit. Um, and, um, you know, even considered at some point maybe combining them, but both of our names are ridiculous enough that that was, you know, we're going to end up with whining or something. And, you know, it just didn't make any sense precisely because the idea is like, you've always been Brett Weinstein and I've always been Heather Hying and we were going to continue to do that now also in partnership. Um, but our children had never been anything. And furthermore, there is evolutionary reason for a patrilineal naming uh, convention with regard to children, which is that uh, in a situation where the children are the genetic children of the mom, I don't have any uncertainty about whether or not I'm their mother. And I also don't have any uncertainty about whether or not you're the father, but the rest of the world might. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> they shouldn't. No, no. I, get, right? I take your so, point. I mean, this, Mammals, this, this is just simply the, this is, the this nature is, this of This is the simply it. And so we are, we are signaling, to, signaling to the world the truth. Uh, which is that we are a family. And yeah, I have the name I was born with, but the four of us are a family and our children um, have your name and that, that therefore raises no questions as it should not. So I, I take this uh, as a simple example of a canonical problem, right? Used to be that a household involved a man, breadwinner, went out and did things in the world to the extent that somebody was going to start a sawmill or innovate, it was likely to be the guy. Mm -hmm. um, the woman was part of a team, but the element of the team uh, teamwork was largely done on the home front. That's not a fair thing, but that's the way biology set things up. Uh, the modern world... Well, it's, not, it's not that old. That, you know, that pattern is um, maybe as old as agriculture. Um, yep, I would agree, but you know these naming conventions are post agriculture, mm -hmm. right? There are pre there are naming conventions that go before that. But I guess my point is, in a world where biology has saddled women with domestic work, um, you, what you have is a division of labor and a team, mm -hmm. and that team has a name and it made sense in some ways for that name to be the forward-facing 
part yeah. of the team. Name, name, dad, name, name, public facing, public facing person was the name of the team that was public facing. Right. And therefore also the name of the team inside. Right. And in modern yes. circumstances, yep. largely yep. as a result of birth control, women have been liberated to participate in the world in, you know, innovation and productivity outside the home. And that's a great thing. But the point is, it creates a situation in which we do not have a solution for the naming convention that right. we inherited. All solutions are bad, right? Yep. Including the solution of everybody keeps their own name, mm -hmm. and then the kids have one person's name or the other person's name, right? Hyphenating. Yeah, I find you. myself when I write to the kids' schools or the you know teachers who I don't who don't know me, I'm like you know Heather Hying. Zach Weinstein's mom, you right. know, just in case you were wondering, you know, like, who am I? Why, you know, why is this random person writing when the kid has a different name? Right. But that's, that's a tiny little cost. Well, yeah. I think the point is there's a tiny little cost with all solutions. They're all bad. Yeah. Literally, all well, of them. Hyphenating is a bigger cost, I think, uh, because you know, it's not sustainable. Is, yeah, right, very exactly. Quickly hyphenating hyphenating yeah. is worse. Yeah. Choosing one or the other is worse. It negates the nature of children, right? Um how you choose one or the other is fraught. And so the point is, yeah, nobody's got a solution to this. And the problem with that perspective is that it basically points to one of the solutions and um, doesn't recognize what's wrong with it. And what's wrong with it, doesn't recognize it is the cost, yeah. in a world where both men and women are building reputations in the world, the fact that somebody has to effectively be nominally trans, that's not the way it sounds but the idea that you have to transition your identity mm -hmm. at the point that you marry a it's arbitrary because marriage isn't what it used to be right mm -hmm. marriage used to be the point at which you start producing children and some married people don't produce children by choice and some people have children before they marry and so the whole system has come apart and the fact that it the was naming... also much more widely understood to be a permanent condition yeah so you know the, the I, I do think that part of what underlies that, you know, conservative, that wrong conservative take is a recognition that increasingly people get married thinking, eh, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And, um, you know, really, it, it is supposed to be permanent. And sometimes it can't be. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Um, but there would be an additional cost for sure. There would be additional reasons to stay in a marriage if you're like, and I have to, and I'm now going to go back to the person that I was then in terms of my name. Like there are additional um, problems with actually becoming independent and having a public facing persona in the world um, if you might be changing your name all the time. Yeah. I don't think of it as a permanent condition. I think of it as a chronic condition. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It seemed like something to say, but sure. um, yeah, one way or the other. Okay, let's just end. Um, Zach, would you show the picture that I sent you, which is the sign that I saw in, in Portland uh, this week? Um, I was walking around a neighborhood, actually, I guess I can mention, um, in Selwood, and there were all these, actually, take it off for a second, I'm sorry. Um, uh, there are all of these places, as we talked about last week, the mask mandates lifted uh, a week ago today. And um, there are still a lot of people walking around in masks, even outside some, much less outside, but in a lot of stores. And there are still a lot of signs on a lot of stores, including like coffee shops and restaurants where you would walk in with a mask, sit down and take it off. A lot of signs that say masks still required. Amazing, right? Um, and I have uh, complained 
uh, in this space before, uh, that you also have a whole lot of signs about equity and inclusion, uh, exactly from organizations that are then saying, actually, no vax, no entry. Um, but this is a sign that I saw this week um, in amongst other Thank you. And amongst other businesses, we do not discriminate, it says, against any customer based on sex, gender, race, creed, age, vaccinated or unvaccinated. All customers who wish to patronize are welcome in our establishment. And um, it is it was heartening. It was beyond heartening. And it's a it's a terrific story, too. I'm I'm actually just not going to mention it here right now until um, until I talk to them about whether or not they would right. like me to. Um, but uh, really, really heartening to see if 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 you're going to say the things that really shouldn't need to be said. You know, we welcome both men and women and people of all genders, whatever that might mean. Um, people of all creeds, which is more or less religion, um, and vaccinated or unvaccinated. Like, if you're going to say all that first part, and if you're actually going to mean it, and if you think that it needs to be said, which... I, I would have hoped by now in the history of humans, we wouldn't need to be saying that now. But if you think it needs to be said, then yes. Then yes also to uh, decisions about um, medical history um, that really have no right, um, no reason for other people to know, much less um, much less ask, ask for and care about, um, especially given the nature of these particular decisions. Yeah, that is heartening, especially in light of the rate of mask voluntary maskness in, in Portland at the moment. Yeah. Anyway, maybe that will change over time. Yeah, indeed. All right. Um, we are going to take a break. We are going to probably curtail the Q&A a fair bit because um, we went on longer than we were going to. Um, you can ask your questions at uh, www.darkhorsemissions.com. You can... You can do all sorts of good stuff. You can uh, you can read our book. You can find us on Patreon, uh, where you have access to the Discord server. We start off every Q and A with a question from the Discord server, the Dark Horse Discord server, which you get access to in either of our Patreons. And I would remind you to be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>